Hello, welcome to Dark Habits and a Motivar podcast. I am your host Spencer, and Joel is back. Uh, he's missed uh, a couple episodes, but he's back at the, on this one. Why are you talking crap about me? You, you have a busy life. It's not your fault. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's not the the listening audience is like. This slacker still doing his old thing where he has real life, and you got the quotation marks. I know what's going. Okay. <laughs> But before we officially start, um, this is being recording this during Pride Month, so happy Pride, and also trans rights are human rights, and uh, with what's happening in this country, like I, I always say, get involved, get educated, and um, just don't sit back and, and, and don't sit back and just go, go and say like, oh, it's not happening to me, so I'm all right. You have to get involved in some way. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so this episode... This is a weird transition. This episode is on cruising, <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah, we're going to get into it, but first time guest, uh, Mark Oestis. Hey, how y'all doing today? We're good. So thank you for uh, coming on here, and uh, I'm curious what you thought, thought of this movie. And, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, and also, re- returning for the first time in since the Spike League season is Zach. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So, Zach, I know you love this movie. Joel, I know you you had heard this movie before and hadn't seen it yet. Right. And Mark, I assume you've probably um, heard of the movie before uh, I I, I, uh, reached out to you. Yes. So, yes. yeah. What is what does everyone think of this movie? Am I the only one who loves this, or are we just are we just all talking about it? Uh, I I love the movie, but I see the issues people have with it. I'm not stupid. <laughs> like I can see how someone can uh, can react react a certain way to this movie. Um, yeah, it. I think, like, especially, like, as it was coming out, you know, there was a lot of, like, even while they were filming it, there was a lot of protest within um, the gay community at the time for, I think, what they thought the movie was going to be about. Um, I don't think that they were entirely wrong, but I think that kind of seeing it um, through a lens of um, time and just kind of revisiting it some things, I think the, the actual signal of the film was... Um, kind of more than what we you know originally thought it would be going in um, you know obviously from William Friedkin who's an incredibly transgressive director um, but I think that he had a lot more to say within um, the confines of this movie that uh, I think at first glance doesn't seem quite as um, as interesting as what it became so uh, Mark Mark uh, what did you? What, first off, did you like this movie? Actually, I did. Um, but just like what Zach said, I understand the problems people had with it at that time period. Um, after I, after I watched the movie, because uh, this was the first time I actually watched it from point A to you know Z. Um, I had seen clips of it. You know, being a young gay, you come across this movie and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Let me see what they're talking about. And getting bombarded with all the images. And this was on, I want to say, like, uh, 
maybe a pay cable channel or something like this. So a lot of stuff was edited, but you know, you can only edit so much out of that. So I, you know, was aware of it, but I noticed that every time I would bring it up to other um, gay or queer fans, uh, film fans, they would be like, uh, I get a lot of pushback from it. And so I just kind of like put it on the back burner. So when you Spence brought it to my attention for the podcast, I was like, yes, this gives me an opportunity to actually sit down and watch it because now we're in a world where memes and gifs are used a lot. And you would see like certain scenes from the movie and whatnot. So it was just, you know, okay, this would be a great time for me to sit down and watch the movie. But I enjoyed it. Um, I have I a have lot of stuff to talk about it, you know, but yeah, I did enjoy it. Okay. Uh, J Dog. Uh, you told me in a text earlier, but uh, did you like this movie? Um, yeah, yes, I, I did like the movie. Um, I think that it presents a couple of different ways that you... I, I don't know. When you start the movie off, you're not really sure necessarily what you're going to get. Like, at first, it almost seems like it's going to be like a some sort of dirty Harry style thing. Well, mm-hmm. not, not to say that uh, Robert, uh, not Robert, who <laughs> Al Pacino's oh. character <laughs> is anything like uh, Clint Eastwood's character. But you know, we've got this like brutal killer going out there, stuff mm-hmm. like that, and and then we see that the police basically clueless after uh, a scene in a police car that I have heard way too often as being a factual <laughs> thing that happens. Um, and then like you're, you might be expecting, yeah, a movie where Popeye Doyle is going to figure out what these gays are up to or something. Uh, but it's not, it's not really a police story at all after a certain point. So I, I found it surprising that way. And, but like altogether, I thought it was (laughs) enjoyable is the wrong word. I thought it was good. (laughs) Okay. So I, I, we should get get the um, the obvious thing. Well, to me, the obvious thing out of the way, Zach. I I presume you probably know this thing too. This uh, so the the serial killer that this movie is based off of was in was in The Exorcist. Yes. Yeah. He was. He's the anesthesiologist. I believe in the hospital scene, and he was actively killing people at the time. Of the filming of the of the of the exorcist, you see, it's based on a real person. You're saying yes, okay. That who was in a William Friedkin movie earlier in a decade. That's why um, I was like, I, I got to tell tell this guy's story. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't think he knew he, that guy was a serial killer. I'd hope he didn't. He didn't know. He probably said something if he did know. Hmm. Um, can I can I go back a second? Um, yes. You know, talk about how this isn't really a police movie. I think I might argue that this is, like, the police movie. Like, it feels to me like one of the biggest points of this movie is um, a direct, like, indictment of the police and how they treat people, um, how they treat um, not just marginalized people, but the kind of their entire worldview. Um, And so, you know, I mean, the film opens up with DeSimone and his or doesn't open but like you know has an early scene is D. Simone and his 
um, his cruiser with his partner just talking about his wife leaving him and De Simone that keeps showing up, whether it's in like the clubs, um, out cruising in, you know, the park himself, um, the way that he uses um, the sex workers that he picks up for his own, you know, purposes and stuff and how he just like treats people. Uh, to me, the police, like this is such a big part of of the film and I feel like that is the main message. Um, you know, Paul Sorvino's character, Edelson, um, deliberately says like, this is not mainstream gay culture. This is a subculture, um, which, you know, think about, you know, everything that's happened over the past decade of, you know, shootings in gay clubs. The fact that like gay culture though, you know, queer culture's made steps forward. It's constantly pushed into its own corner. And I feel like, that is kind of what sets off this film is like the police's attitude towards, you know, urban decay, towards moral decay, towards, you know, what they think is a problem in the world that they're actually building for themselves. That's interesting because I did not pick up on Joe Spinelli popping up on scenes outside of the two that I actually saw him in. Yes, thank you. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, you didn't? Like, that face is so... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I I have partial face blindness okay. to excuse my thing. I don't. And the movie was very dark. So, and mm-hmm. most of the people that they kept running into had similar, like similar characteristics. You know, um, they said that the killer was going after a, a specific type, and so when you go into the clubs and you will see all these different bodies, but they kind of had like the same, you know, uh, dark hair, dark eyes sort of like a um, five o'clock shadow beard or something like that. And granted, I was like in the middle of the night watching a movie and Joe Spinelli is like you say, has a very recognizable face though. But mm-hmm. when it's not really focused on them and you just go into like a pan shot or something. Yeah. The first time you see him in the club, it's with, it's almost like a montage shot, like really early of um, Steve or John Forbes going, um, just looking at different faces and you see his face show up very quickly. And then you see him again in the park and there's kind of like a prolonged like um, back and forth just like shot between Steve and um, DeSimone like looking at each other. And it's like, does one recognize the other? Do they know what they're doing Um, kind of thing? And it's and then, you know, when Edelson recognizes his name at the end um, after talking to uh, Da Vinci early in the film and stuff and him just kind of like seeming more sympathetic and understanding this guy's in the sixth precinct and what is this guy doing? What is his connection to everything? How does he kind of fit into even like the, I guess we're getting into spoiler stuff, Mm -hmm. um, you know, towards the end with what happens in that final murder that isn't connected. Um, but just, you know, I, I, Paul Sorvino is like the only like sympathetic person on that police force, you know? Yep. Yeah, see, I, I want to go back to when I'm when I'm at the police. Like, I agree that one of the things I really, really liked about the movie is how we we're we're not kowtowing to like police are there to protect us kind of things. Like, that's probably part of the controversy about this movie. Besides the portrayal of the uh, yeah, anyways, the other stuff. Um. Have you ever guys ever been to a club where people are just uh, lubing up, getting ready to... You know what? Uh, anyways, what I was saying. <laughs> it was like a detective thing. Like, you you know, like, oh, I found these clues. Let's talk about this kind of thing. Like, or, you know, the lab is working on something. Like, 
I I was pleasantly surprised that it was more about just all about Al Pacino's character kind of like struggling with his idea of himself after being exposed to this other way of life and 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 like for the police part it's like a a filter free view at at probably a very realistic portrayal of what it was like and stuff like that i, th- I can't comment on the other stuff well i think that like I, it's it's funny and i think like why i like this movie so much too is that to me it feels like it, it normalizes homosexuality as the norm right and there's because it's giving you this window into so many things that like maybe people didn't understand if they didn't count themselves within like a queer community is that like you can see so much repression even within all the police and i mean fuck the uh the the scene with the um like the torture of skip lee like using that kind of racism and homophobia against them of like well you know they want to be gay let's show them gay you know and like how each each cop is like basically obsessed with this the same way that you see um you know i don't know what anyone else's experience but like people that bully you people that um try to hurt you because of this thing that you are are they're obsessed with that that same thing you know i know people right. that are you know very racist and very homophobic that are obsessed with you know black men's genitals and like right. talking about them all the time and right. there's just that like I think at least for me in my experience of life when I was really young like I didn't I went through a period where I thought I was gay but I didn't I still wanted this and I still wanted that and to me like I didn't understand that like bisexuality or pansexuality was an option mm-hmm. and I see that in Steve's character a lot kind of going through these things and like you know using this mission in quotation marks as in uh an ability to kind of um explore his own just his own inner world outside of the constraints of what might be like a stifling relationship and you know being forced to kind of fit in with what would you know at the time was mainstream society yeah i i also want to piggyback off of that a little bit uh steve just going with the character of steve or john forbes it just seemed to me that he like you mentioned he didn't know about the concept of bisexuality or pansexuality you know in that time period because it was either it was everything was black and white back then it was either you are or you're not and there was no in between the in between stuff was just you know it became kind of messy even going into the 80s because with bisexuality especially in the black community a lot of the a lot of statistics were being put out saying that the AIDS virus spread between the homosexual population and the heterosexual population due to this DL culture. And I'm not speaking for the entire, you know, for my entire black community, but I'm just saying that for me, that was kind of like a scapegoat put on um, black bisexual men's back. In terms of being like, you know, uh, well, you're the you carrier know, of this virus. You're moving yeah, it from rats to humans, you know? Right. Like, it, yeah, yeah. And, you know, so you have like that whole mentality of, oh, 
I can't sleep with a man that sleeps with another man. Like, if you even brought up the fact that, yo, I'm really into you, as you know, in a hetero relationship, excuse me, in a hetero heterosexual relationship, if you even bring it up to a woman that you've had sex with me in the past, even if it was an experimental thing, maybe you only did oral sex or just not penetration and then it'd be like all bets are off like nope nope i'm not dealing with it because the main thing was they'll be scared that they're going to contract something so maybe that was also the deal back then but this this was pre um aids sort of and i think that he just didn't want to lose touch to that i guess the access of being a heterosexual male where he has you know he he can move through society without any problems but as being as a gay man at that time period he was going to get like a lot of pushback a lot of hurdles I think the scene that stuck out to me was when after I think he went to a couple of clubs and he went back and um, he was having sex with Nancy Allen's character Carol I was, mm-hmm. no, I'm, I'm, yeah. uh, Nancy or her name's Nancy Karen Karen Allen yeah yeah Karen this, thank you and he, yeah. the thing that he kept saying was like don't let me lose you. Don't let me lose you. And I took that from just watching, just just from the first time seeing that scene was like, he's really not talking to her. Like, don't let me lose you as a person, as my lover, but don't let, don't let, like as a, don't let me lose you as a heterosexual man. You know, does yeah. that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like my, my notes for that, for those parts are like, he's just reaffirming his straightness. He was trying to be like, right. I'm not gay. Right. I'm not gay. I'm totally normal. And I say normal in the sense like, that time period like this character of course yeah yeah i just want to make that yeah i don't think anyone anyone here is um deriding homosexuality is non-normal but using kind of the parlance of the time that the film is at and like what the mentality of the character is um which i think is also kind of part of like what the pushback of, of everything was too like we i think sometimes especially now people have a hard time watching movies um, that are pretty transgressive that have different kinds of language in them that um, may, like there's a difference between a good character and a good person right mm-hmm. and there's certain languages and yeah they, they throw a couple F words in this movie but that's the- not the movie saying that like this is a thing you should say it's always on the you know the end usually of the police or it's um, you know used to describe someone that I think is otherwise treated very sympathetically throughout the film and there's even this the Spanish slur too it shows up a few times yeah yeah and I, I um, again to kind of go back a little bit to what Mark was saying about you know like um, bisexuality kind of feeling like that flea into the AIDS virus um, I mean you can read this I think you know there's a really good read of this film that you could just kind of look at as like you know the, is the killer a metaphor similar to like um, I kept getting vibes of like um, it follows a little mm-hmm. bit of this like because let's look at even the killers the killer in the first scene is the second victim you know and it's the killer is this like amorphous form is Steve the killer at the end like what is this is this a metaphor for like you know different um, mm. different things plaguing you know gay men at the time you know thinking police you know shrinking their shrinking space within society aids and the risks associated with being forced underground which is cruising itself you know even the ted character when they're having lunch talks about like you know i'm i'm afraid of cruising and it's 
it's not that he's afraid of being gay. He's afraid of that, you know, increased police uh, presence. He's, you know, he's afraid of exposing himself to danger to be who he is when he, you know, is at home in like an otherwise, um, you know, pretty regular relationship. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. Because the thing is, during that time period, there was a lot of serial killers in New York City at um, active. Because I literally had got through watching cruising and I think my TV jumped immediately to I'm a true crime junkie so that's another <laughs> thing. Um, it went to very scary people and they went to the Times Square killer and he I think got caught like right at 79 or 80 I could be wrong Okay. so um, so it's, it's interesting because I didn't pick up on the fact that this is why I told my um, letterbox review that this movie requires multiple viewings because you can easily miss stuff during the first viewing because you're always focused on like you know the main plot and then you can just pick up on little small things after the fact because i didn't know that the second killer i mean the second victim was the first killer i didn't know that uh and there's like scenes where like you know um when the professor or the the one um designer guy is killed in the um in the booth right the kill like the person that he um that kills him his face changes several times. And the first time you see his face when he's walking into the booth is the first victim, you know, and then it changes at one point to the second victim. It changes a little bit. Then you see, you know, um, you know, Stuart character. So it's, it seems like it's like purposefully trying to obfuscate, like who is this killer? What is this killer? What is the thing that's killing these gay men? See, I picked, I didn't pick up on that. I'm glad you brought it to my attention because I I mean, um, we we is there a spoiler territory situation? Because I want to spoil anything before no, we get to spoil. the uh, go for okay. it. Okay, okay, because I there's a book I have called Queer Males and Contemporary Cinema by mm-hmm. Kylo Patrick A. Hard, and there's a section in here where they took a snippet from William Freakin himself. He said there is more than one murderer, and that's what a lot of people couldn't wrap their minds around. We are conditioned by films and most of television that if it's a murder mystery, by the end of the film, when the curtain comes down, the murderer is caught. On television, there's a murderer that takes place at 9 o'clock, and by 10 o'clock, it's completely solved. Evil is put back in the box, and Cruising doesn't do that. Cruising says that the evil is still out there, and the evil is out there. It's not meant as a cautionary tale to gaze because equally what I learned from the research on this film is that most of the murders go unsolved in almost every big city in the world. So the fact that that amorphous face, you know, changing of the killer, it makes it seem like, I guess, as a whole, if, you know, if you will, the police department was looking at like, oh, this is a string of murderers. It has to be one person out there. Mm-hmm. And that's the mistake that they made because they were focusing on one person and I, I don't know it's just I don't know it's just that yeah, interests uh, me a lot yeah, that, even the a, torso killer thing like that to me like had zero connection and again right. it's like an indictment of the police yeah. like not caring about their job it's like well why don't we link this to these other things about gay men in there because you know at the time you know they viewed and I'm sure police still now like viewed you know homosexuality as a deviancy just right. like murder, just like, you know, and there's there's levels of, of, of deviancy and murders. There's someone who just 
you know, murders their wife in a fit of rage? Or is there something completely more deviant about hacking up a body and throwing it in the river? And like, how do we compare deviancies with one another and make, you know, an analog between the two of them? Well, it just must be these other gay men that are getting killed, you know? Yeah, and there's recently, as I think two years ago, an active serial killer in Toronto who was killing uh, uh, gay men. That the, right. it took, I think, three murders for the Toronto police to actually start to investigate. Right, and that's not even the first time because I think it was not just then, but also I want to say I can't remember the time period, but I know there was like several, again, true crime um, episodes. But they talk about this guy who was married, had kids, him, his wife owned a shop. And he was not only killing men, he would go to the gay bars and pick up, you know, single men and bring them back, um, have sexual acts. And he would kill them and he was burying them all on their property. Like they found, I want to say about maybe five bodies. I don't want to just throw a number out there just to be, but I'm just saying they found a lot of stuff on his property. And when the police started to close in on him, he went somewhere and if I'm not mistaken, they either said that he killed himself or he might have been killed by somebody else. So this happens a lot. So it's just, you know, I, I, to bring it back to the all the hoopla that was um, being um, thrown about when the movie was being made. It I don't know. It, it kind of. I think that's one of the issues I had with the movie because looking at this from a contemporary lens and looking at it back then, you know, you have to look at it at both time periods. And if I'm not making sense, y'all, please stop me and tell me, Mark, you're not making sense because I tend to go on tangents. Uh, but basically, it seems as if um, with all this, you know, the stuff we just, we just laid out right now, like there's multiple killers, there's multiple... Um, like stuff like MOs are not tying together like like you said the the torso in the in the water and stuff like that because you had two different types of MOs or three really going on you had the torso um the, the, the body's being chopped up thrown in the river or in the, in the um not river but the um pier and then you had like the three stabbings in the back like the hog tie stabbings and stuff like that and they pushed all that together and I'm not trying to speak up of William um, Freakin for whatever his idea was to do this movie, but there was an article written that the movie was based on, and we already said that it was based on the guy who worked on The Exorcist. Um, I don't know. It just seems like why why the why the pushback to show that there's murders going on in our community, and you know they need to be you know brought attention that uh, there needs to be some attention brought to it. Instead of like pushing it back, uh, push, pushing back on it to say like this is going to make all gays look bad because of the particular subculture they decided to um, pick. I, I'm i just throwing it out there. I'm sorry. I'm just. No, I think that that's a really good point. And I think that like what the movie does is kind of show that that's that's kind of how the police operate with stuff. And, you know, the point is that they don't really care about gay murders in the film. Right. They care about the torso killer. They've created a narrative around what they think happened. And then so they're tying it to these gay murders. And it's like, well, if we solve these gay murders, we solve this thing and we show that, like, this deviant has been brought to justice. You know, and in my I've watched the movie maybe like five or six times. And like 
I don't think that Stuart was actually a murderer. Like, I don't think that at any point, you know, we don't see him doing that thing. I think he was obviously disturbed and like the way that he, you know, wrote letters and spoke to his dead father was, was clearly like, um, you know, a person who was kind of haunted by probably being rejected by his father or even possibly abused by his father, whether it's psychologically or physically, um, because of the person that he was. And, you know, again, I, I really do understand why there was pushback early on. And, you know, even before the film kind of came out, but, um, I'm kind of, you know, willing to give William Friedkin the benefit of the doubt of his, you know, what his motivations or his, um, you know, his message was because, you know, he was part of like a, a generation of pretty transgressive filmmakers that still seemed like that they were pretty sympathetic with the fringes of society, um, which I think that the gay community was at the time. Yeah, um, I, I concur with a lot of that. Uh, I think my thing was with the pushback, it was like a knee-jerk reaction because my whole thing was how do they know that this is what the extent of the movie was going to be? Like, did somebody show somebody a script? Right. Was there a word of mouth? Because they said they used about 1,600 extras in the club scenes. Mm. And like, did somebody who participated in the club scene was like, yo, they're in here filming, you know, all of this stuff going down and... You know, and they're talking about it's gonna be a big production. You know, Al Pacino's involved in it. You know, you know. So it just, it just, I don't know. It just was a, it was perplexing to a degree because again, when you're trying to make strides um, and being becoming accepted by society as a whole, yeah, you don't want anything deterring to this. So I get that fear you know of being like you know you're gonna rep you're gonna make all gays look bad um and i guess because me being you know on the in, in, in the intersectionality of being black and gay um i tend to look at stuff like if you do a certain movie that has a black cast and it's like very bad i don't look at it as looking as being very uh detrimental to our community to a degree. If it, if it's going out, it's making us look really, really bad. You know, I might say, uh, but some people might actually like that. And then there's some stuff out there who probably be, you know, especially if it's made by somebody who is not within their community. And I think that's one of the reasons, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people kind of like was up in arms because William Freaking, um, I don't think he he wasn't gay, right? He wasn't like queer of any kind, any kind, right? Um, any type, right? I don't like not outwardly and not like. Yeah, I don't think it'll ever say that on like a Wikipedia. But the other thing too is that like, what if, what if he was like, what if like this kind of is that? In right, the same yeah. way that like you know you could look at you know Paul Schrader that that same kind of fashion of like people that are willing to, you know, experiment with themselves and their sexuality and their um their their proximity to these um, marginalized communities and you know there isn't an analog for that of like hey was william freaking you know secretly black that's like not a possibility right but i think in terms of like sexuality um it's it's kind of tough to um to gauge that because even mm. you know talking about like you know bisexuality or pansexuality like i'm i'm pan but i'm in a heterosexual relationship you know mm -hmm. so like 
there is that kind of pushback even within communities of even gay people you know that'll say like oh bisexuality isn't real um it's just uh, a word or these kind of things uh, and i think that you know there's a there's a real possibility to that kind of thing within like those kind of filming communities as well yeah and i'm just throwing it out there i've always hated that um mentality within the community because even though i am i identify as being fully gay i do not um, subscribe to body erasure or pan erasure or anything like that because it is very detrimental. It's it's, it's very closed minded and it's very limiting on the whole spectrum of sexuality. You know, for people to explore who they want to be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, which brings us back to the main character of John or um, Steve. Um, I sympathize with him because he really was struggling to it's like it it, it feels as if he was made like this case was made specifically for him and for him to go out and just ease into um that whole the, the whole culture um his happiest moments are just sitting at a table talking to ted exactly yeah it just seemed like he was in his own element because I know you said that Paul Sorvino's character was very sympathetic, but you could look at um, him, um, Ed O'Neill, who I was like, I can't believe he's in this movie because he's he was in everything back then, just about. And uh, the was, other cop, where was he? Yeah, he was the other cop that was with the um, Joe Spinell. No, 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 he was he was one of the detectives that was right. like, in the torture scene, and he went huh. to right. the steakhouse to see Skip Lee. Oh, That's okay. Right. I missed him completely. Huh. Did anyone clock Bruno Kirby in there? Talk about a cameo. Oh, uh, no. Where? He w- he was the guy putting Crisco on his hand. Yeah. Huh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Um, uh, um, you did know, you guys, I'm sorry. Did you guys know his powers booth? Yeah. Yes. Shit, that was, yes. That was, <laughs> that was like one of, that's one of my favorite powers booth roles. It's so simple, but it's, oh my God, it's so powers booth. Yes, I was like, I know his face, and I was like, I know who this is, but I've never seen anything with him in it, like as a young character, but younger than he is. Don't give me y'all. Y'all gotta excuse me. I have a crush on Powers Booth. <laughs> he was on like twenty four when he was on twenty four, yeah. because he just had like this cockiness to him. But any, but but sudden yeah, death, that, sudden death, hometown favorite here in Pittsburgh. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a it's a lot of blinking. This is why you have to watch this movie over and over again so you can catch these things. Um, but those cops were not. It's like when the first scene when we first see Paul Savino as the um, mortician, not mortician, but the um, what do you call those guys? <laughs> uh, oh, medical examiner. The medical examiner. Warner, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, when when he was explaining everything to uh, Paul Savino, it's like. He was just describing like, yeah, he might have got he he like we were talking about semen and you know ejaculation and stuff, and it seemed like Paul Savino was getting ready to blow um blow chunks on you know like he was like getting ready to like you know throw up. But I'm like, you've seen plenty of dead bodies at this point, so what's different about this dead body that is not um what was I think it was the whole idea of him talking about semen in his butt and stuff like that. And then him going to have to like 
be put on this case and him looking always looking somewhat slightly sympathetic but not too much it just seemed like i don't know what you know they do over there have you ever had a you know something jammed up your ass have you ever you know i'm like he just asked these questions like that's a really good point i think that i was looking at him also through the lens of like seeing the movie several times and kind of i think where he gets to Mm -hmm. Um, so i think that i just kind of like breezed past that but those are all very good points yeah because it's just you know when you when you're with the police there's a in the the movie when when you're with the cops there's like a heightened level of tension because you don't know how far they're going to take certain um ways of getting information out of people especially when the whole wiretap scene with skip and um with john and all while they was listening to the wiretap i was like they're going to jump the gun and they're going to make the scene. They're going to make it even worse. I said, what's going to end up happening is they're going to actually find Skip and um, John and they're actually having sex and they're going to probably look at him a totally different way or something like that. Like, you let it go that far, bro. You know, like, you let it go that far. Um, but you want to talk about innuendo. Holy shit. Premature ejaculation. Like, right. jumping the gun and, like, you know, John, the character of John, you know, um, Steve's character, just like, He's almost like let down. He's like, "Come on!" Like this was like, "Right, you almost <laughs> yeah. got me. I almost like, got there." You came into early. early. You, came into <laughs> you came into early. Yeah, like, that, like even yeah, exactly. Like, like this movie so has so much of that. Like even you know the end where he's you know shaving and leaves a little like shaving cream on his face. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like it's like he's shaving off, starting anew, but that's still on his face, and he doesn't get yeah. that off, and that has that same kind of like almost ejaculate feel to it to me right i didn't pick that up oh my god that is so interesting um right i mean we can cut it out but yeah because i was one well that's one of the reasons why i was scared to come out because my dad i don't want i don't want to say my dad is like uber macho but he is very masculine he's very hands-on with stuff he has to constantly have his hands fiddling with something in the yard something electrical something you know building something he constantly has to have something that represents masculinity but not i don't think it's a mental thing that he has to like constantly to portray himself as being masculine it's just that that's all he knows it's just uses his his hands to build stuff or just have his hands on fixing stuff and whatnot he never understood why i was the type of person to stay inside the house read a book watch a movie or something like that so that but it's funny because in the movie we get to see this is one of the positives of cruising that i liked about it we got to see several aspects of gay life in my personal opinion we did um we had um we had ted who was you know um he was a playwright um, and I think most people look at if you're in New York, you're a playwright, it's automatically assumed that you're gay. And that's I just think that that is a stereotype in itself. But at that time, I feel like that was a positive portrayal of somebody, you know, that was very um, on the other side of the spectrum of what the movie was dealing with. Then we had Ted's boyfriend, Gregory, who I was shocked was uh, James Ramar. Um, who's so good at that? Like, yes, he's so good in this movie. Like, Wait everyone, even the smallest bit roles are so well done. I, I didn't realize that was him. 
Yes, that's Giants with Bar. <laughs> oh shit! Well, the funny thing is, like, for every person in this movie, there's someone. There's like a mirrored version of them. Like, because mm-hmm. even the guy that plays Skip Lee looks kind of like James Remar. You know, um, there's so many guys that look like, you know, Al Pacino in this. When you see some yes. of the scenes in the club, the guys interacting with one another are almost mirrored versions of each other. There's never a guy with a mustache talking to a guy without a mustache. You know what I mean? They're like, there's such homogeny in in what attracts one another to things. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And maybe that's like the point with like Ted and um, Gregory, played by James Remar, who like seems at such opposite odds and why that doesn't work and why it ends in violence, maybe. Right. Uh, you know, it's just, you get those two who, they show you that, yeah, you get the subculture out here that's into like as um BDSM and leather and all that, but you also have a domestic couple that is just we're just like you. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the the two guys who were well, not, I don't say guys, but the two sex I workers. Say they were trans. Yeah, I want to. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to just put a label on somebody, okay. but I yeah. just know that we. we the, always the main saw one it. is named Da Vinci. So if you yeah, Da Vinci. That, yeah. Right. Da Vinci. I love Da Vinci because yeah. they're they, so incredible. Right. They were like, yo, look, I'm give, I'm helping y'all out. Not just on this particular case, though, but I dealt with y'all a lot. You know, y'all know I'm good for my word and I'm not going to sit there and lead y'all astray because they are caring. They, they care about the community. They have information and they want to be able to walk home and, you know, safely and not have to worry about harassment from the police themselves even like right you know and i'm glad that at the end i'm I'm glad that paul savino's character at the when we see him and joe spinelli finally have that time together and he he looks at the he looks at his badge number (laughs) he's like well his badge he's like that name remember that i I remember that name aren't you in the sixth precinct um, i see at least he's still able to be like, okay, I'm going to do right by my informant and probably sit there and hand this guy his ass. But then this bomb was dropped on him and he probably kind of like left it to the side. But the fact of the matter is that I know who you are now. And if I hear any other bullshit come out of Da Vinci's mouth about you harassing them, I'm going to bust your ass because Da Vinci, I mean, initially, uh, Vinci's by everyone, you know, right. Right, and but and you know how the you know how Paul Savino's character was like. At the, initially, they were like, uh, "You know how many people a, impersonate cops every year? This is bullshit." Right. I and think by the end, he has this like moment of like his own what his own complacency has created, whether or like how implicit he is in any of this stuff. Like, there's a moment where it's like, "Is is Steve the killer here? Did I create right. this?" Like, he obviously didn't know where Steve was living. He knew the alias John Forbes, but like. When he puts all this stuff together, he's like, "Did I do this?" You know, whether right. it's you know and, not uh, not going out on the limb. Yeah. And going off of like the the police impersonation, you get that the payoff visual payoff later on of, of it's precinct night at the club. Right. Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was like, how do you not know? I, mean, I guess this just shows you how far off, like, they think they know what they're doing, but they really do not. Like, there's a whole sea of men in here with police outfits. And, and they deliberately tell Steve that he doesn't belong there. Like, <laughs> Which is crazy. That's amazing. That that's, like, the, the most intersectional part for that character. And they're just like, take a walk. 
like you know i think you need to leave kind of thing and that was i think that says so much yes um uh, sorry uh good uh joel you've been quiet a little bit so um yes sorry i've been been talking so much i've been enjoying the conversation between you two i don't (laughs) oh i'm curious but like what are your overall thoughts on cruising than the movie, not the activity. I don't know your feeling about <laughs> activity. Well, I've got to say they're about the same. No, John. Uh, I, I mean, there were so many things you guys were talking about that I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, the, okay, so I did remember that I did see Joe Spinell in that cop. Like, he was in that one where everybody was dressed as police officers, right? No, it's actually before that. I think it's the first club that he goes to. Um, And you just see a bunch of faces, and he's not dressed as police. I think he's just wearing, like, like an army coat. Okay. They do googly eyes. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about serial killers and how... Statistically now, it is much more difficult to solve a murder. And you look at the police records and stuff like that. Most of the murders go unsolved. And I don't think it's because we've gotten worse at detecting murderers. I think it's because rules got enforced wherein you can't just link murders to one person just because you need to clear, you know, clear the table or what have you. And like when it comes to serial killers that, I mean, we don't know necessarily if the person in the end that we all think was doing it was the one who was doing it. And that kind of plays into the thing and linking the random body parts found in the, uh, (laughs) found in the, whatever that area is in the ocean. Yeah. I think uh, it's like, like the East river or something like that. Yeah. It's not like that goes along with the portrayal of like what it's actually like or what it was like for police back then. Like, I'm not saying that that practice hasn't gone away. I'm sure it hasn't. But a serial killer, as a rule, is a much harder thing to be nowadays because of how much surveillance and tracking and things like that we have. So it's like, was this guy a serial killer? Like these two murders these three murders look similar it's like well we can see for a fact that this guy has never left this area or whatever but uh, um, just to um make sure i'm clear what you're saying are you saying more that like it's it's tougher to um solve serial killings now because when they were never really solving them before they were just kind of connecting um like disparate angles to a single and like putting them on towards a single like killer a lot of the times, yeah. A lot of times. And there were definitely yeah, okay, cases just, where yeah, it was I, I, a I, singular I, killer, right? Like, if that, if that guy got caught with, he had five bodies, you know, buried in his yard, obviously. I don't think somebody <laughs> yeah, else came and buried them there. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Uh, I, that was just something I was thinking about. Um, yeah. And, like, to go back off topic about bisexuality and whether or not it exists, I don't understand that thinking. Like, what what's the explanation for it not existing? Like, just like, oh, you're going through a phase? Like, well, 
What do you mean going through a phase? Was somebody dating two people of, of different genders or three people of different genders? <laughs> like, doesn't that mean... Okay, never mind. I'm not getting to it. I'm not an expert. I'm a, I'm a straight white, white, half Mexican guy. I'm not going to explain it either, but I will say that to me personally, it comes down to, I would say, it just seems to me when I, when people do that, it's more of a wishful thinking on whoever says it's part. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, well, you can't be bi, you know, you're either this or you're that. And it's usually from, in my experience, and I always have to stress this when I talk about stuff like this, because some people think I'm talking about everybody, whether I'm black or gay or whatever. No, in my experience, it has always been somebody who was actually gay yep. or lesbian. You know what I'm saying? It's never now. Not all. But it, that's not to say that I haven't had that pushback from, you know, um, uh, heterosexual people, but it's more along the lines of. Oh, if you've had sex with this guy um, one time, mm. um, or they could look at it like this: they could be like, "Oh, you might have had sex with like this girl, but oh, let's just say you have." I'm, I'm I'm trying to get my words correct. You can have sex with five women, right? Yeah. And then you sit there and have sex with one guy. Yeah. Or you didn't have to have intercourse sex. You could just be like, "Oh, we kissed and made out," or we you know, uh, fond of each other, something like that. You're gay. Right. There's no, yeah. there's, there's no, no bite. There's no in between, even though you didn't, you pretty much are attracted to women and you had that dalliance with that one guy. And it might've been 20 years ago. You're yeah. still going to be probably labeled as gay. Right. And the crazy thing is when you deal with women who are, who identify as straight and they could have like, a college fling with a girl or something like that and then you bring it up she's just going to be considered, considered straight you right. know what I'm saying it's just the way people perceive sexuality in their own um, in their own way you know what I'm saying but I, I I've always had people say when I was growing up there's no such thing as bisexuality or if there was if a woman was like she claimed she was bisexual. It was accepted. She might have a girlfriend this week. She might have a boyfriend next week. Who cares? A guy sit there and say he's bisexual. Oh no, baby, you're just gay. There's yeah. no bi. There's no bi in that nowhere. You know. So, right. and that's that's something that bothered me about the recent uh, Freddie Mercury biopic and a recent whatever it was like a couple of years ago now. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody in, in the scene where he reveals to um, his I think they're just girlfriend and boyfriend at the time that like he has been attracted to men and hiding it from her. He says, I think I might be bisexual. And she just straight out says, you're gay. And I'm like, what? Haven't you guys been having a relationship this whole time? Like, and I'm, I know, I know Freddie Mercury was having sex with that woman. Like she know because that's if a real person. And she said, share so. like a weird personal anecdote. Um, in yes, middle please. school, I had a, um, health teacher uh, I don't I couldn't even remember his name to say it but um he during you know like we were talking about sexuality and stuff I felt so bad I mean at the time also I didn't know what my sexuality was at the time or whatever but I remember him talking to us and saying you know when he was starting to talk about homosexuality he's like here's the thing though guys you can think about it all you want as long as you don't ever kiss a guy, 
you're not gay. Like, yeah, as long as you actually not. don't go through <laughs> with it, you're not gay. But you can think about it as much as you want. It's like, Jesus Christ, this guy's going through some shit right now. With it, like, and he would always bring up his fiance. And it was kind of clear that this guy was like repressing quite a bit. And I like that was the first time I think I'd ever like really noticed somebody else like kind of repressing themselves and like i think that like everyone knew what was going on except him and just didn't want to accept Mm -hmm. it i hope he's living his best life right now i hope that he decided not to get married or that you know didn't work out or he's just maybe he's married and happy in in a situation that works for him but um just yeah that same kind of thing of like maybe he was bisexual maybe he was struggling with stuff and for some reason decided to share it with an entire class of 13 year olds but like, wow, yeah, it was. Um, I I couldn't help but think of that also watching this movie, um, right? And it just again just since there's like not an organic way to to really segue into it, can we talk about the dance scene real quick? Yes, yes. yeah. Of, like that's one of my favorite scenes of any movie ever. Yeah, um, and it's the movie where like I'm. Again, not an expert, never talked to Al Pacino in my life, but I would be willing to say that, like, that was Al Pacino, like, being free for the first time in his life kind of thing. I mean, just on screen being open like that, it just, it felt, it's so electric when you see it happening, because he just, like, everyone around him is smiling, too, everyone's having a good time, and he finally gives in, and I feel like dance scenes in movies that aren't about dance are so representative mm-hmm. of just, like, someone putting everything out there as this, like, being themselves kind of thing. Like Beau Travai. Beau Travai. Right. I don't know if anyone's seen um, that recent film, Return to Soul. There's a really no. lovely, like, kind of small dance scene in that. Uh, what about the opening of Climax? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you seen Climax? Yes. I have it. Yeah. A long oh. time ago, but yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the whole... came out. Yeah. Yeah, the opening, think, 20 minutes or something? It's a long yeah. time of those people dancing. And then it turns into a Casper and Away movie. Yeah. That's where it didn't... Um, I don't know if I love him. Um, and that's where I didn't, like, kind of stick with it. But, yes, that's that's a really good catch. Yeah. <laughs> it, it... Like, even if it was... I, I don't know if it's like Al Pacino himself feeling feeling that way, but like I assumed it was the character himself finally just allowing, you know, he's looking around, he's tense the entire time. And when he, this guy kind of just pulls him out there and he realizes like, I could either reject this guy and like stand out or I could just join in. And at first when he's, he's kind of dancing, not really doing it, but then he like gets into it. He realizes like I can have, fun like this i could like this is enjoyable i'm enjoying myself and he, he does he gets to let loose and like yeah i got the warm tinglys from that feeling like this is like this guy is finally allowing himself to be himself i mean this dance is so weird yeah. and bad and like it just feels like it's not it couldn't possibly it's one of those movies like scenes where it's like it couldn't possibly be rehearsed it's just like happening. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it feels like, is that Al Pacino just like giving in? Like, is he just, right. yeah, let's just do it when it happens. And I, 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 that's one of the scenes where I, you know, I told you I would see clips of and you see gifs and memes and stuff like that. And I knew it was from cruising. 
Um, but to see the scene play out, and when he got that first hit of poppers, um, it was just like, you know, he is, he's, they really did, you know, he loosened up. And I, because I'm not a person who uses those things, but not saying that they're bad, not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that I've heard that that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to loosen you up in oh, situations yeah. like that. And I feel like it did the job, especially when the camera or his like um, peripheral starts to like blur a little bit. And it's just like, you know, he's just like, you know, oh, fuck it. Let's just, yeah, let's just, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He just like, you can literally feel like all of his, all the tension leave his body. Like, can, can with I each really dance quick, move like, he was doing. The poppers thing, too, it was this scene with like the torture scene and the police when the chief walks in and just like squirts antihistamine like up his nose the same way that they do poppers like that stuck out to me is that exact same thing where he looks around for a second like he's gonna stop it and then he just sits down and does that like it's lowering his inhibitions to what he's viewing in that same way but that was like such an awesome mirroring of that scene oh yeah and like uh, the, the thing about the interrogation scene that once the black cop comes out and slaps him it just like that moment is just like to me hilarious. Cause what it's, the hell, right? It's, just, it's, <laughs> it's so, so weird. It's so weird and random. It's like it feels. I don't say Lynchian, but like it just feels like, what am I watching? <laughs> but it Should also at the same time is Street that Street Fighter Five or uh, Three. Three. Yeah. What do you say? Well, which which one has the uh, the like half red, half blue guy? Oh, uh, the same oh, thing. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Seth? Gil? No, yeah. Seth is yeah. from Thor. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, oh, Urian. No, Urian's... Yeah, Gil is That's the That's what I'm thinking of, Urian. Yes. Um, well, to me, is also like... Again, you know, to keep talking about like how this movie just keeps back coming back to police to me, is that like that black man coming in and like a jockstrap slapping him with a cowboy hat on. <laughs> That's like the worst thing that the police can come up with as a form of interrogation. Do you know what I mean? Like that's again it's not it's not an indictment of William Friedkin in that moment putting that in a movie. It was just like, what is the worst thing that these cops think that they can do to a gay man because they're obsessed with gay men, even though they they say they're completely straight and it's that obsession with them that keeps driving them, you know? It's crazy because I've been I've just just put it all on the table here. When I saw that I was like, if I was in that chair, I'd have probably been like, y'all can tell me, I can tell y'all what the fuck y'all want. Just let him hit me one more time, <laughs> <laughs> because that was the it was hot as fuck for me. We could, we, I mean, it was hot as fuck for me, but it was still like, like you said, it was lynching a little bit. Because like, where did this come from? What? Who came up with this? Like, do they do this with every um gay John they bring in here? It's like <laughs> some of the people actually like this shit. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like. Yeah, what are look at doing? like the repressedness of those cops that are just like, yeah, and then a ooh, a really greased up black man will come in and he'll slap him and, in a like, jock strap it's with like a cowboy head and some... pornography. Yeah, right. May, may I just bring up? We don't mm-hmm. know if they, they only do this with the gay uh, suspects. They may do it with every suspect. I don't know. It just seems like <laughs> we to saw me. you shoplifting, ma'am. 
<laughs> no, they'd probably be like, she'd probably be like, well, can look, I, I, I did his shit. Can I? Can he come home with me? Damn, you know. <laughs> but yeah, how does it, that guy it, feel it, about what he's doing? By the way, he's just reading the paper. He doesn't seem to mind. This is like a paycheck. He doesn't mind at all. <laughs> no. And I say I did read somewhere that the Maplethorpe. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Maplethorpe um, yeah. art. They said that that's when he became obsessed with um, the black body was oh. from this scene right there. Oh. And they said that, you know, he kind of started, like, drawing a lot of his pictures from that character. And oh. I'm trying to figure out who the hell played that character oh. now, because, my God. Um, yeah. But, no, it was a crazy, it was just a crazy moment. And it's funny because it looked as if John, or not John, but Steve, and, you know, like, the fuck he do that for? Like, what was it for? Like, what was that? Because he looked like he was kind of shocked. Like, he was like where the fuck did this come from but then he goes into the next room and he's like you know you really hit me hard yeah and i'm like so were you in on that because when you was in the room you looked like you didn't you weren't expecting this slap because that drew blood <laughs> i think right. it was just yeah he was not expecting a real hard slap i mean he's got that bruising around in his mouth and is like is it like upper cheek and stuff like huh. that immediately like that was a slap yeah yeah, and um, I it's almost like a scarlet letter, you know, on that's on his face for the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's uh, a recent movie that borrows from this movie quite a bit. Uh, Knife plus heart. Ooh. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, um, I haven't seen it all the way either. Yeah. Oh, it's like visually certain scenes. This is so much of this is like, oh, knife plus heart like owes a lot to cruising. Yeah. Except I can tell. Yeah, except the big difference. Stranger oh. by the Lake. Uh, seen no, what? I have not yet. Stranger, uh, by, the Stranger lake. by the Lake. Uh, uh, no. I feel like that is the movie that people thought this was going to be, where it's more just mm. like, "Hey, is that guy a murderer or not?" Without mm. really subtext to it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, there's like there's set pieces in Night Plus Heart that are like, "Oh, this is just like." The, uh, uh, I got a, a high, a heightened surreal version because Knifeless Heart has like a half bird humanoid character that shows up for one scene, so it 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 goes in some weird directions. I love the movie, I mean, the, but the, the movie's like a, it's it's kind of a comedy as well as being yeah what it what the rest of it is yeah and the, the opening kills with a dildo knife which is crazy and you never see it again for the rest of the movie that's the you know that reference to seven except that wasn't a dildo never mind I, yeah i don't know i oh, did see I know that part okay. yeah, yeah i did see that part yeah, yeah but the movie is secretly about a lesbian relationship lesbian relationship that goes bad not about the writers well can i can i ask like a quick question of like so us while i'm talking about this movie mm -hmm. is it possible to make this kind of movie now like this movie coming out in 1980 like exploring these kind of things whether through like a trojan horse or otherwise like can you make a movie that is this organically like um subversive uh, I... the answer is yes but not to a wide theater release <laughs> no let go ahead no, I was gonna say um, I haven't seen the recent season of American Horror Story yet, but it's about 
a guy. I think they call him Big Daddy. It's a, it's a, it's a serial killer in the gay community around this same time period who calls himself Big Daddy. And um, that's all I know. And I used to be like dead set on watching American Horror Story, but they kind of burned me a couple of you know seasons. So I'm like, I didn't jump into this one immediately. And it went under the radar this year because um, I'm thinking that they didn't do a lot of heavy promotion. I don't think they started promoting the show, the season until like a week before it premiered. And but there's a lot of gay actors in it, you know. It deals with New York City during the late 70s, early 80s and stuff like that. And it's about a, a leather bondage killer. So I and I haven't, you know, heard too much about it because, like I said, a lot of people have kind of like worn off on American Horror Story. But it looks like like what Spence said about Knife Plus Heart. It seems like um, it owes a lot to cruising, you know, well, so the yeah. reason I asked that question, too, is that like. You know, now also we're, you know, people are much more aware of things and in a really positive way that you would rather have someone in the community playing someone in the community, right? You would want someone yeah. gay playing a gay character. But I think part of what works for this specifically is that, you know, we don't know if he's gay and all at the same time is like he doesn't know if he's gay. So having like a really big actor at the time who was not openly heter or not openly homosexual kind of exploring these um, these themes seems a lot more, you know, I keep saying the word transgressive, but that's how it feels to me of like, imagine seeing that movie when you're kind of, um, you know, unsure of your sexuality or you consider yourself, you know, heterosis and then watching the film and saying like, well, maybe I'm worth exploring this or this this is something that was worth me exploring in the same way that like Al Pacino did because Al Pacino seems like a cool manly guy and like you know he's a tough guy or he's you know he's a badass guy in some of these movies but is like interested in exploring these kinds of things and I to me as much as I would rather see you know someone gay playing someone gay this I think really works in this film's favor because it it is so like unsure of itself and uh, also I should point out this was one of the first major Hollywood productions about uh, homosexuality at all like th there were others in the past but this is you know like this is like very loudly about the like those themes and ideas mm -hmm. and I think that also added to the fire of like if this is the first huge major production of this and it's a problem of like um, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this it's a problem of like portrayal and how like if if a if a population isn't portrayed a whole lot the first major portrayal shouldn't be to some people shouldn't be in like in a bleak like crime serial killer story maybe it should be like a family uh nicer story but yeah and that's 100% valid but that's where a lot yeah. of the criticism was coming from Right. And I understand, like I said earlier, I understand where that criticism came from. I just feel like it's not, I just, I guess the only, it's not a pushback. I, what I'm trying to say is I understand if they got the movie, they saw the movie had been made and then, you know, somebody went to go see it was like, yo, this is bad for the community. But it was like the protests and everything started like when the movie went into production. And so, 
a part of me feels that maybe one some of the reasons why because I'm still doing research, some of the mm-hmm. reasons why they he got so much pushback at the beginning at the at the beginning of production was because he also directed the boys in the band, mm-hmm. and in the same book I you know quoted from earlier, it said that he also got some like flack from that movie too. So I think it goes back to just being like, um, maybe it's an it's an um, issue or um, tale of let people from their community tell those types of stories, because in the hands of somebody that doesn't get it, it could come across as being very either judgmental, yeah, or it won't translate well. If yeah. that, you know. T- yeah, but at the same time, you have people like in classic Hollywood, George Cukor, who was a, a gay man who directed the women's pictures, and like he was able to, he, like he was an expert. Like if you need someone to direct a movie about women, you get him because he would do it right. And then you have like uh, Norman Jewison at this at this in the seventies and eighties in Hollywood, who was a Canadian, and Carter Martin Kessler, not Jewish, but. uh kind of blew my mind but Norman Jewison directed a couple black movies and like his black movies are considered like for like for its era like the the better black movies like by a non-black director that Hollywood put out right and I can throw one even in their um call apart by Steven Spielberg um that is a black classic film for the black community however you know of course I don't know if you guys mentioned it but spike lee mm-hmm. had a big issue with that yeah. um he had a big issue with uh oh, wait. steven spielberg directing the color purple oh so spike lee ran his mouth about something he shouldn't be running his mouth about what <laughs> <laughs> well he was he he um it's a book he put out i think with the making of to do um, to, um do the right thing where he was upset he, he mentioned he had like a diary it's a diary it's mm-hmm. like a Screenplay slash diary, and he mentioned how he was not a fan of um, Steven Spielberg doing The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. And he said, we got to make our own films and stuff like that. Now, his attitude might have changed since then because, like I said, he wrote that during the um, time when The Color Purple was out, like 85, 86 mm-hmm. and whatnot. But you can't, you know, tell somebody. Like, even when they released the recent trailer for the upcoming The Color Purple musical coming out this fall. Oh, yeah. Um, that director... Never mind. I, I reached out yeah. to, the, to that director to come on the show a couple of years ago after his first movie came out and his manager never responded. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know who he is. Uh, um, Blitz the Ambassador. He's a rapper. Okay. And he, uh, because I, I'm not familiar at all. Uh, and I'm, I, I, I'm sorry. Wait. Uh, he directed... Uh, there's a Disney Plus thing that Beyonce did. He directed a segment oh. in it. Okay, and his, um, that was fast. And his first movie <laughs> is on Netflix. Uh, what is it called? It's like 70 minutes long. It's really short and to the point. But it's a really, I think it's a good movie. It's not great, but there's it shows a lot of potential. Uh, I just know that when. Um, when the when that trailer hit, there was a lot of people saying, "Why are we make we making classics?" So I'm just saying that the color purple, even though it was directed by Steven Spielberg, and it had its own issues behind the scene issues or whatnot, but it's still considered like top tier black, you know, excellence. Huh. You know, the movie and everything. So, but I feel like 
you know, still, I feel like people were probably scared to put this in the hands because this is being distributed to mainstream mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, this is being played alongside like other big hits and it's got the names of William Freakin and Al Pacino and Karen Allen and Paul Savino behind it. And you're like, people look up to these folks and they're going to probably look at it like, oh, this is just an indication of all gay culture because everybody always thought that gay um equal deviant behavior like you said earlier Zach and not only deviant behavior but um like homicidal you know mm-hmm. um behavior behavior too that those and things so, were equitable to one another was that or equated to one another was that you could murdering someone in cold blood was the same thing as having sex with a man if you were a man exactly yeah and were, and right. you know the scene where the first guy's getting killed and they actually show the penetration and whatnot mm-hmm. that's some of the things that people were saying like th- that right there is what we're afraid of is that you're saying that stabbing somebody um you know it's the, it, it's akin to just you know having um anal sex with some with a, with another man right although in fairness it, i mean it I don't want to say too much, but like w- w- women also like to be tied up sometimes. Some women are into that. So like you can't just say exclusively it's a gay thing. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you 100 percent. I was just saying yeah. like that's what they were saying. Yeah, I, I know. Because I, know. I, I mean, there's, that... there's definitely a point to seeing they even say the word he penetrated at this point. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, yeah. It's right. beyond innuendo in that sense. So. Yeah, it's just like I find like the reaction of like, well, not it's not just gaming like other people do the tied up thing too now it's just like it's very i i, I looked up some reviews of some reviews for, for cruising i came across a recent thing i'm, I'm not sure on this thing so i'm not going to say where it is or who it is but it was just this big hit piece about how it's the worst thing to happen to the gay community and like i'm straight i should say it but the piece is read as i'm offended by everything this movie does and it's like I don't think you paid attention to the movie, but at the same time, like, uh, I, I, well, I think that I, like also like marketing can have a lot to do with that. Like, if I can pivot one second to um, Neil Jordan's um, The Crying Game, right? Like mm. that movie has gotten so much flack over the years as being called you know transphobic um, or like you know anti-gay, and I, I really, I found the movie to be like surprisingly tender but like the marketing around that movie and like the i guess the the way it was covered i mean there was literally a review of that movie where if you put every um first letter of every paragraph in a sentence it says she's a he you know and everyone Mm. played it as like a a reveal or like oh man you got to see the twist of this movie and you know again like um steven um who's the the main actor in that movie ready but um he his reaction to to the character is is not reflective of what the film is trying to say so much as this person going through this and and finding their limits and finding like what they find sexually acceptable and how that the idea of love overcomes their predilections or what they thought was was possible for themselves as they always I'm sure, like, thought of themselves as heterosexual or cis, and just, just generally, you know, commonly straight or whatever. But like, finding 
finding love in someone that they thought that they had put borders up against, you know, I to me feels like kind of hopeful as someone who's just like, I'm accepting you as a person. I'm accepting your love. Now I'm accepting your body. And I think that hmm. like, have like viewing, you know, stuff like cruising in, in the same way, like, I mean, how it's what it was 1980. How many mm-hmm. years away is that? Like, you know, uh, Joel, how old are you? It's out of here. So, like, it, there's just so much distance between these things. There's so many things that, like, take a life of its own um, on top of that. Like you said, Mark, it's, like, so memeable. You know, there's so it's so gifable. Like, there's so many things that, like, you can do with, with the text without actually ever exploring the text. And people can know this movie without ever actually seeing this movie. Um, and it's just to kind of go back really quickly you're saying too of like you know Friedkin making you know the boys in the band like um as the same thing as like kind of a his foray into things that maybe he wasn't privy to but wanted to portray in some ways and like you know it's worth mentioning that Robert uh Letourneau the one of the main actors in that movie died of AIDS you know that this is something that wasn't born to freaking um, mm-hmm. as he was making films even. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but I will say that at the end of the day, I'm not at the end of the day, but uh, the movie, I mean, Cruising to me, mm-hmm. it overall was just really great um, in terms of, I would say it was great. Let me take that word back. It was interesting in how you follow this character from you know point A to point B because I personally felt that I don't want to say that he became the killer at the mm-hmm. end. Um, I don't want to. I don't. I just. I just don't. I don't know. It just seems to me that that ending. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to like steer the show or anything like that. It's just the ending was the one thing out the entire movie that frustrated me. And the re- I was just I was trying to figure out how I wanted to you know t- um talk about it. Um because I equated it to the end of Halloween. Um huh. when uh when Watching the behind the scenes for Halloween, John Carpenter and um, Donald Pleasance. I think Donald Pleasance told John Carpenter, I can play this last reaction two ways. I can play it as, you know, it's me being shocked that he's moved, he's left or he's not there anymore. I can play it that I knew that he wasn't going to be there. You know, when we, we pan down, he was not going to be on the ground. And I feel like this same scene, that this same notion with Pacino, because I, I think I read somewhere that he had this same, a similar conversation with Freakin. And that's the end of they decided. I think that's the shot that they decided to go with. And it was kind of creepy, but at the same time, it was frustrating because it's like, were you the one doing all the killing the entire time? Because you, there's certain different ways you can look at that last scene. That last, because one, who's to sit there and say that Steve was not the one doing the killings the entire time, but by him getting put on this beat on this undercover um, uh, job that he got, you know, he could move around freely and not, 
necessarily be caught if that makes any sense because mm-hmm. he could sit there and be you know exposed he, he he's he's around he's he's hunting but he's like restraining himself to a degree because you know because it seemed like he he focused on what was the the skip character and i'm looking at him like i don't see initially i saw skip i was like it's not him he just doesn't give off like that menacing you know type of uh he wasn't giving off the killer what's the word i'm looking for he wasn't giving off killer to me is what i'm trying to say he wasn't giving off like he had different vibes yeah he had different vibes, but he just seemed like he could probably take down somebody unless, you know, he tied them up or something like that. I mean, even if he I don't even think anybody would sat there and let them let him talk them into tying them up. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, he was skittish, but he wasn't like, oh, yeah, I I feel like I can sit there and let you tie, um, um, talk, let, let you talk me to tie you up. I didn't get that for him. I, mean, so I, I got feel the, like I got the vibe that he was like probably a virgin. And that, like, right. his issues were specifically with his father and in whatever kind of rejection that he faced with him. Um, he was curious. He was always against the wall somewhere. He was always right. very much an observer. Like, even that scene where um, Al Pacino is wearing the, the yellow bandana and the guy said, you know, if you're just yeah. watching, take that shit out of your pocket, asshole. Like, Ooh. it just, he was in costume like everyone else you know he kept everything i don't i don't mean i don't think it was an accident that his his outfit was in his closet you know but like in the same room with the letters to his father and that his friend was like sympathetic of like and even kind of went along with the fact that he talked about how he just talked to his father that day you know oh no i miss skip i miss skip the the um bartender oh i'm sorry um, i was thinking waiter guy i'm sorry yeah. No, I, Stewart. Now I could see him doing something, but it just to me, Skip didn't give off a hunter, you know, type feel. You know, he didn't seem like he was hunting. He just seemed like he was just, just a nuisance. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he didn't seem like he was like hunting anybody. But he was like I, James Rewar's character in uh, the Warriors. You know, he was Axel. <laughs> that like, and when I watched the Warriors, to him like, is Axel gay? Is he just trying to act macho? He's the only one that throws the F word around, you know, like, right. he's, and one of the things I even, like, even the scene where, um, you know, Steve goes to meet Stuart, like on the bench, that always reminds me of that scene where he gets picked up by the undercover police in the Warriors. It's like the same mm-hmm. looking bench, the same looking scene. Um, but yeah, just like that idea of like hyper-masculinity and like violence masking something else going on right Mm -hmm. and i just looked at you know maybe john or actually john and steve maybe they were using him as a, a scapegoat to you know say i'm doing my job but i'm not doing my job you know what i'm saying because it looked for a minute there that he kind of lost his way and that he wasn't trying to uh really find anybody he was just so you know you know shocked that he's around the culture right now but at the same time i feel that he could have been like playing that up just to throw everybody else off but what i'm trying to say is that he could have been a killer the entire time like that's one way you could look at it two you can look at it as you know maybe he confiscated the um 
because I actually thought Stewart did it um, because they said they had found his fingerprint on the bloody uh, coin that they found in the video booth. So I thought that they, if that if that um, fingerprint matched Stewart, then it's like you can't really deny that, you know, unless Stewart used that same coin within the same, you know. But they pulled it off the finger. They they pulled their fingerprint from the blood um, and on that coin. Well, so I thought that he probably did that killing, but not the rest of them. Probably. I'm I'm going to say something that's going to sound really stupid, but I don't know if those scenes were real. Like, just from like a an objective viewpoint of like how has anyone seen the film Burning from 2018? Not yet. Oh. Well, I'm not going but there's there's certain things that happen when the perspective shifts and there are certainly scenes in the movie where things move away from john but the killing scenes in particular feel like um subjective rather than objective where you're and even even in the scene with the the booth where he puts the quarter like i said like it feels like they're using three different actors as the killer in that scene and we're we're never really sure exactly who it is and is this like kind of just in in john's imagination of like what he's catching you know or like how he um reenacts these um these moments in in his mind of like what he's solving does that make sense that might be like too much of like a a weird you know pushing it a little bit but like i don't know no there's like there's a dreamy quality to the movie where it's like it's just a lot of like fading in and out of segments and like it feels I don't I don't think ephemeral is the right word, but there's this but like certain but there are those segments where it just feels like if this if this was was real to be a dream, I won't be surprised or upset by it. It just there's just a very like surrealist touch to to a lot of it but not heavy on it, just like it's it's there just enough. Well even like the um <laughs> Jack Dijonan, uh song, like the water wheel song that's mm-hmm. playing like while he's observing Stuart feels very dreamy. You know, it's it's separate from like the rest of the films, you know, like um, kind of heavier soundtrack, um, like the Willie DeVille songs that are playing in the clubs, um, you know, even like the, you know, punk song that's playing in that, you know, the booth scene and stuff because mm-hmm. he's observing you know, Stuart, it feels there's something about process and obsession that's happening with it in, in a different way that I think sometimes obsession can feel really dreamy too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would, I, I can see that. It's just, I would buy that if the cops themselves did say what well, the print, the print matched the um, print we found on the coin. You know, they, right. they I don't, know, I don't even know if I believe that, it, you know? but I just, I think of that every time I watch it. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, to a degree, I will say this because cops are known to sit. Look, especially with a case like this, they're probably like we we want to get this off our backs immediately. We want we want to wrap this up, and mm-hmm. we're just going to tell you that this coin, this this fingerprints on your um your fingerprints on this coin that links to another murder. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it could have been that too because again, you really can't. That's the thing about police that I have. Uh, an issue with altogether is that you really can't when they want to solve a case they can sit there and come up with anything especially if it's a case that is like um 
one they don't want to be dealing with, they could just sit there and say, the Prince match, let's just go ahead and just book them and just keep them to just, just, just wrap the shit up and go and buy married business. Right. Especially with a case like this, you know, like, look, we don't want to run into another house, seeing some guy's ass up in the air or somebody's, you know, junk hanging out and everything like that. We don't want to be in more of this. We got other shit to do. You know what I'm saying? And they probably like, look, just just say the fingerprint matches and we just keep it moving. Yeah. But even though the skills fingerprint didn't match, they was like, OK, we got to go back out there again. But. At this point, I think that you're supposed to be like, we, you know, it's the police. They have the forensics to say that the fingerprint matched and whatnot. But, um, or they can be like, like freaking said, he's actually sat there and said that there's multiple killers. And so he, um, Stewart might have killed that one guy. And like I said, uh, like, like you said, the, the, the second kill, the second victim probably killed the first guy, you know. It's just, and I think this pro- oh, this is brought this just shook something for me in my brain. Maybe that's why a lot of people were upset about um, the movie back then. Because if you think about it, if there are multiple killers in this film, um, you kind of are reinforcing that notion that any one of them, any one of them is killing. Like gay equals you know homicidal tendencies. You know what I'm saying? So mental illness, mental illness, yeah. Especially with Stewart because he's schizophrenic. You know, he's talking, he's going to the park talking to his dead father. So it's just mm, okay. Uh, that's something that just just shook loose there. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, I, I don't know with this. Okay, I, I want to get into the filmmaking stuff a little bit because there are like there's some touches that I have to bring up. Um, one is just like. There, uh, the hard cuts to um, there are a couple of hard cuts in this that are just perfect. And like, uh, there's the one where Steve first gets a job, and he says, "I love it." The end cut to uh, Karen Allen in bed just after they had sex, right. which is a very purposeful like hard cut of like the last thing he said cut to her, and then right before he goes goes on a job for the first time, he's talking to. Ted and one of them says uh, you can't be too you can't be too careful out there and then you get the cut to the first night at the club and there's like very smart edits that uh, <clears throat> like upon like I, I rewatched it uh, every time I watch it like I notice these little moments and uh, what it yeah it's I mean it's yeah it's also, you know, we can talk about the subject of the movie, but it's also like William Friedkin, who is like just an incredible filmmaker, regardless of the subject matter he's doing. Um, he's, it, it's just very correct filmmaking in terms of like um, academically, and it's easy to whether the subject matter is easy to follow or not. Like the filming technique that he does is. I mean, it's top of the line. Yeah, and it's like the, it's like the sound design alone is like, oh, this is perfect sound design. Yeah, yeah. he's like mixing tracks, like, you know, putting two different songs together to, you know, change emotion and stuff like that. It's, he's, yeah, he's fantastic at that. Yeah, and I noticed that um, when, when you were with Ted, mm-hmm. um, everything's very 
calm and you can breathe a little bit. You know, you don't have to worry about even it's just the, the contrast between the scenes with um, Steve and Nancy and John and Ted. It's just, you know, even though it just seems like that is just like his safe haven being with Nancy it still seems like there's some sort of tension there like there's some sort of like um underlying there's just underlying tension and then you get with him and you don't know everything about me or there's a lot about me right yeah it's also like everything's so black and white Ted has like bright red hair everything is so colorful you know they go to the diner the ketchup is so red you know Right, and you just—it's just—it feels right when he's with Ted in terms. And so when you kind of like don't see Ted for a minute, it's kind of jarring, because um, like Ted represents like that lightness, you know, of all this dark blue, these dark shadows, these dark, you know, these like smoky clubs and stuff like that. It's just Ted is like, you know, the the light <laughs> if that makes sense. i keep going to back to the light yeah. yeah he's free he's lively and then he's also always part of nature and stuff like that he's out and about even though even though we have um john stalking Stuart, but it still feels like there's some type of tension going on there's a hunt going on you know right but with um ted it's like just a slice of life in new york city you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. and I like how that it's kind of jarring um, and not jarring, but it's it's jarring, but not, it's like, you know, it's a contrast rather between both, you know, situations and you kind of be looking for that next scene for Ted, you know what I'm saying? Like what's yeah. Ted up to? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, I genuinely love their friendship. It's very, it's like, it's the only like positive, nice thing in the movie pretty much. Right. Very positive. Like the moment he seems eats and like, he's laughing and smiling and yeah, yeah, easy going, very easy going. Yeah, and like just a, so welcoming, I think. Right. Thing too, which I think is like, even in the club scenes, I felt like I think there's, I mean, there's a lot going on in a lot of the club scenes, but for the most part, it's very smiling. You know, it's very happy. Even the bartender when he when um, John asks about. Um, you know, Skip Lee, and he's like, he's trouble, stay away from him. Like, yeah, the, bar- from. the bartender yeah. as that, like, um, you know, kind of ferryman into that community who's looking out for everyone and who's, you know, making sure that, like, people don't go home with, you know, someone they shouldn't or, like, you know, there's no kind of sour tricks happening. Yeah. And uh, there's one thing, because, like, there's a whole, I guess, implication that, I got a little bit that uh, the former tenant, um, uh, Bobby, who I guess he died or left. I, I don't think you ever get a clear, clear answer, but there's this, a, a weird vibe I got of like, is Steve becoming like Bobby? Right. Even when Gregory says like, it must be something to do with that apartment. You know, everyone yeah. that stays there is trash. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. And, and that made me think of um, the movie A Tenet, the the Roman Polanski movie. I, I know Roman Polanski is scum. I'm fully aware that that movie is great. And if you can get past, if you can get past that stuff, 
I highly recommend the Tenet, but it has strong Tenet vibes. Well, it also made me think, it wasn't until this most recent rewatch where I wondered, like, did Gregory kill Bobby? Like, you know, he was obviously, like, very jealous. You know, he's he's a very jealous um, lover, apparently. You know, especially with, like, oh, when Ted's working, he's not getting involved. Not like last time. So we know that he's violent, and we see what happens to, to Ted. So is that, like, an implication that, um, of... Gregory's violence. I think it is because even though when um, when John burst into the apartment after he, you know, thought he had walked away, uh, he matched his um, energy. You know what I'm saying? He matched the same energy, but it was like he went for the knife because he probably felt that okay, John is bigger to me than. Ted is and I might gotta shank him you know what I'm saying um, but I feel like if the fight was between Ted and Gregory um, I feel like Gregory would have the upper hand only because Ted seems to be like I said he's like this positive like um, free loving spirit and he doesn't seem like he would very trusting and he seemed like he would be more emotional in a situation like that like Gregory why are you doing this what's going on and then Gregory can easily get the upper hand and sit there and just do you know just be, be super valid with him he's got that, and, that wild dancer's energy to him that like, right. can't read him you know right yeah like he, he would understand physicality and like the subtleties of it he's a performer you know we know that he's a dancer <laughs> We know that, like, what he what he does for a living, too. Yeah, and, um... Uh... I don't know with this. Oh, uh, Joel, I want your input on this, because I know you're a fan of this person. Do you think Nicholas Winding Ruffin likes this movie? Oh, of course. I mean... <laughs> it's I mean... I don't... I can't, like, name a specific thing, but, it, mm-hmm. like... Especially, I'm thinking of... Um, well, there are scenes in Drive that kind of uh, put Ryan Reynolds in, in the state where... Ryan Gosling. Like, Ron Canadian. No, no, Ryan Reynolds, in my mind. Ron Canadian. Ryan Gosling. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, kind of gives off a feeling of whatever he's... I, I don't know where I'm going with this. What, what it really makes me think is uh, of... Uh, <laughs> Let's just pretend we never talked about Nicholas Winding Riffin because okay. I just drew a complete. I think blank. if even if he doesn't love this movie, mm-hmm. there's no way that Riffin is not a William Friedkin fan. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, definitely. Yeah. yeah maybe Friedkin can adopt him. Like, uh, who was it? Uh, Jorowski in Germany uh, adopted him, so like technically, they uh, they are father and son. <laughs> right. Who? Uh, Fried, um, Jorowski adopted um, uh, Ruffin. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, Did they like throw a baseball together. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Jorowski is more fit than he is. Jorowski is a very spry ninety plus year old. I can't tell you what either of those people just look on, like. on Jorowski's uh, interpretation of things. I wonder if he loves this movie. You know, he's, he's not a yeah. fan of straightforward uh, blockbuster cinema, so I'd be interested mm. to see what he said about this, too. You know, speaking uh, of transgressive filmmakers. Yeah, speaking of people who use animals. 
Yeah, I, I can't. The, yeah, I can't. I can't watch Holy Mountain a second time. Once was enough. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. 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 Anyways. <clears throat> okay. So what is there? I don't have much else to really. Oh yeah, the the whole end segment. It, that it turns into like to me it feels like a, an American version of Shallow. Toward, toward, toward mm-hmm. the end segment and. Uh, I don't have much else to say besides, like, I just like this, the, like the kind of weird Argento flavor that gets suddenly thrown in towards the end. Is it like the mm-hmm. him staring into the camera, or is it? Do you think that like Karen Allen's character, um, you know, putting on his leather gear, that is like kind of reactivating him in that moment of like he's not sure if he's, you know, she even asks if he's turned off by her. Um, is this her way back into? His Hmm. Um, or like his kind of inner, um, you know, yeah, back back into his imagination. Hmm. I don't. Know. I th- I thought it was hot when she got in the clothes there, but that was uh, completely <laughs> unrelated to the rest yeah. of the movie. I mean, I mean, uh, Karen Allen is always attractive. But here is like, holy shit, she's fucking hot here. You know, I I never thought I was going to see Karen Allen in a sex scene because I only know her. I mean, what do I know her from? Starman and uh, Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, I think she gets it on. I mean, she must get it on with Indiana because uh, they have a the right. fourth movie, right? Yeah, they have a kid. Right. So where's well, that scene? Speculate. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, oh, uh, Mark, any thoughts on the American Jalo? Um, thing. I love it. Uh, it's funny that you because somebody else said the same thing. They said that it gives off a Jalo feel, um, and I I can see that uh, because I think that's why the ending was so frustrating. Because I sometimes be frustrated with some Jalos, but oh, not yeah. not in a bad way. But it's like, oh god, it's just so unnerving. But I think that's why it unnerved me a lot was the ending was because you it's kind of like it's kind of like a split like it just felt like he, you saw his personality split through the mirror mm-hmm. if that makes any sense you just kind of like realize that oh shit either he did something he actually did kill ted or he might have killed somebody else or maybe he didn't kill ted but he it's like you know going through this i don't know it just it just left me with my jaw like dropped like what the fuck just happened? Like, did he do it? Did he kill the other guys? Did he only kill Ted? Yeah. Is is this like um, if he did kill Ted and if he did kill um, the others, is Nancy going to be next on his list? Is he going to change his MO up? You know, stuff. You just various stuff that was going through my mind. And I like I liked it, but I was I was still frustrated. I yeah. know that's kind of like how can it, but it, that's just how my ending. That's how my um, thought process was when I saw it at the end. So. Yeah, that, that to me still felt like he was. That's the thing that brought me back to like is this more supernatural. Is this an infection? Is this something that happens? Yeah, I mean, so, somebody said that. I'm sorry. Somebody actually said that in the book. They said that it, one of the reviews I read did say like it was a one of the reasons why they didn't like the films because it felt like they were saying that there was a some type of evil or like the um evil was trans um could be trans um 
What's the weapon for? Transform. Transmissible. They're thinking oh. transmissible to the next person, and now that he's, now that he is probably like satiated his um, gay tendencies or whatnot, now he's evil. Now he's you hmm. know a serial killer, or as one reviewer said it, um, if y'all just give me just it says that, how do you say it? like they were pretty much saying like, he looked in the cure he looked in the mirror and said that. It may or may not be Steve entering the leather bar in the meatpacking district at the end of the film, but that look he gives to the camera is clear. I'm here, I'm queer, and I'm going to fucking kill that F son of yours that you threw out of the house when you found out he was into musical theater. And that was from a critic named Ed Gonzalez. Like, if I had to go for a motivation of why uh, Steve would actually kill Ted, that's the the neighbor, right? Ted? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ted, Ted is the only one practically that he was ever most like. I mean, he was the one he was most like himself with. You know, the the relaxed mm-hmm. attitude going, and nothing about sex, nothing about finding a murderer. It's it's just like this guy actually has become my friend. I don't know if I, I can't, ha- you know, if it's like I can't handle the fact that he knows I'm gay, or. Not, not that he knows that I'm gay. That, that like he knows me. Like he actually, other people, I'm whatever, play acting or I'm actually into it. Doesn't matter. I was doing a job in some cases, and but with Ted, like, no, this guy actually knows me, and that's incredibly dangerous if I don't want anyone else to know. Exactly. That was another way of looking at it. Plus, um, I don't know if you guys know about the the character Steve in the novel that was that the movie is based on. Mm. He was racist, and he had uh, he was stationed on an army base, and he did some gay bashing. Huh on the army base and so if you look at that aspect of it you kind of can see that he did have some gay tendencies you know going into the um you know he was probably beating up his own you know sexual attraction he was taking it out on a gay guy by beating him up and it could go into like him coming into this you know um world where he has, you know, free reign to just, you know, explore without feeling like, you know, somebody's watching him or something like that. It, I know one, a reviewer said that it, it, it was a lost in translation from the, because they said the book, um, the movie is loosely based on a book and I can see why. However, I don't think that, I think the characteristic from the book would have probably made him even more unlikable. You know what I'm saying? Because they wanted him to be the the viewer's um, journey into this world. So if you have him as a gay bashing and um, racist going into this world, it's kind of be like, oh, well, you know, who are we supposed to be rooting for here? You know what I'm saying? So I feel that, but looking at it, looking knowing that now, looking at you know, after watching the movie, I feel like the only thing that you could take from there was that he already the the Latin homosexuality in him was already there, you know. Um, before he, because I think the movie gives you this thing where he just 
I'm happy go lucky. I don't want to do anything. I just want to. I just want this pr- promotion. I'm willing to do anything. And then he's like, "Oh, this has opened up something that I did not know was inside me." Yeah. But we know that that's not really the case if you look at the book and the and the line that he tells Karen Allen about you know um, you don't you don't know a lot about me. Mm-hmm. You know your dad called. Um, and I don't want to. He kind of got tensed up and stuff like that. Who was to sit there and say that his dad, him, and his dad don't have a connection because he already had that lad homosexuality um, in him, and his dad probably caught him. It's just a lot of piecing together that I guess Free can let is trying to let the viewer do for themselves. Yeah, right. There's a. I mean, you know, again, but, there's mirroring between him and Stewart. You know, just that offhand comment, and then I feel like once you get to Stewart and realizing, like, oh, he has father issues as well. You know, there's that possibility. Um, I think that, real quick, I think that we'd also kind of be remiss to not mention that there were some issues with the filming and release of the movie in terms of, like, Mm -hmm. apparently there was, like, lost footage. There was, like, ruined audio and stuff. And that, like, the voice of the killer that's so, like, it feels like it's kind of an amalgamated version of different voices um, mm. You know, that was, it's clear that that was ADR, but there's something that's still like after the fact of like some problems that were happening kind of takes on its own life within the viewing of the film. And so I think that like most of the stuff that we've been talking about is, as kind of subjective are, is, is just further, um, you know, proof that like, you know, art can take on different lives after it leaves the artist's hands and that we can interpret these things as completely different. The, you know, that have nothing to do with, you know, maybe Friedkin's intent that these kind of like happened upon them at the same way. Hmm. Well, I don't have much else to say besides like, I, I, I'm fully aware of the issues of this movie. I still love it. It's, I like, it just like, it just, it just hits right. This movie is just, it's just something special. Yeah, that's what I said. Like, I don't think there's ever, I'm ever going to see anything like this again for like a plethora of reasons. But I can't. Yes, like you said, I'm I'm aware of the issues. I'm aware of a lot of things, but I can't help but love this movie and see it in a way that um, is just always going to be interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I echo that. I, I echo that sentiment. It's just one of those movies that's going to be polarizing. Um, I I did want to say that I found it. I think I find it kind of amusing um, how much vitriol it got when it first was released, and um, I think it's only because of the leather scene and whatnot. But I feel like not trying to be not trying to cause any problems or anything like that, but it's the gay scene from what I've been seeing from certain, you know, websites and certain, you know, people that I follow. Um, it feels like certain stuff that happened in the scenes where the, uh, the leather bar and everything like that, it's not happening just in leather bars. It's happening in other bars, but it's just with more, because, I feel like more people are out and about more gay people are out and about. They can be, they can be free who they want, who they want to be. And I've heard some stories from circuit parties and stuff like that. So what I'm trying to say is, is that what they was like uh, upset about in that 
and then in the first in some sets um excuse me in some parts of the film are actually like normalized in today's gay society in certain circles not all but certain circles so and that's just my interpretation i don't want to y'all can come for me don't come for the host come for me if you want to have something to say about that just because I, i'm just saying from what i've seen from what I've been told, some of the stories I've heard, I'm like, the stuff that I saw in cruising was tame. I'm just saying. Um, you can so, come for me. I, I'll, I'll take the blunt of whatever's coming here. Nah, I take it because I know that I don't want anybody saying that, you know, you guys are being, you know, homophobic or anything like that because the fact that you were discussing this movie during Pride is, you know, saying, you know, that you guys are just, you know, it's a discussion to be had. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jay Dog? Kind of, or like yeah, we talk about the issues and stuff like this. This is, this movie like a lot of, for one reason or another, is kind of part of gay culture now too. Whether it's derision right. or it is, you know, a fascinating look at what things used to be like. I think it's kind of hard to not recognize it. Yeah, uh, J Dog, final thoughts. It's a it's a great family movie. <laughs> I think uh, get the get the kids together, pop some popcorn, get out the Crisco, and uh, you know, ha- have yourself a a good evening, and then spend the next five hours explaining to the kids a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> like this movie gives so much to. I mean, just hearing this whole mm-hmm. conversation that I, I occasionally I, I popped in annoyingly. Uh, it just gives you so many no, things to think about. Like way. as a William Friedkin movie, like that's the ones that I have seen. I feel like that's something he intends very, very much. You know, I've watched The Exorcist more than a dozen times, and I still feel like there are just nuances and other things like that that I didn't realize before. And like, um, and then what? What is the remake of The Wages of Fear? Did he direct that? Yes. Sorcerer? That that movie, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever gonna get everything. It's it's really good. And I I'm very happy to say that cruising falls into that. Like just just you telling about the mm-hmm. uh, talking about how the, the killers mm-hmm. are basically trading around or are they? I don't know, but but it's like yeah. I it's very good. It, ha- it does have that giallo feeling. You guys were talking about that, <laughs> or you mentioned the dub voice. That that's what really sold it, like the giallo feeling to me. <laughs> it's like that voice is coming, not coming from that guy. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. What do you would do? It's not as funny as a giallo <laughs> voice, though. Some some no, of those voices not. are hilarious. I mean, it's kind of funny, but not yeah, not, yeah. As, funny. not as funny as getting slapped randomly. But anyway, um, I I just realized I'm talking about Ruffin and uh, Friedkin. There's that uh, clip that goes around sometimes of uh, Friedkin getting interviewed by Ruffin, and Ruffin says like, "So, I I think was I think was Drive like, so why is Drive a classic film?" (laughs) The Friedkin, yeah, Drive, his own movie, and Friedkin's like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" (laughs) Because Ruffin is a he's very cocky. And uh, yeah. very, uh, I think like this. He likes to start shit. I, I'm pretty sure it's this. 
he's one of those. Oh, he's one of those fun guys. He's an agitator, yes. certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Marcus Penn has met him a few times, and uh, he said he's he's this very cocky and full of himself at all times. Yeah, I, I think that, I, I think you have to be to make his movies, though, to make those kinds of movies, to some degree. Um, I think you have to be like very sure of yourself. I don't think that there can be any like, um, there can't be any kind of wishy-washy. Am I good at this or not? I think you just have to like, no, I'm I'm fucking good at this. And then, and it's, for better or for worse, there's at least a lot of confidence in his films, even if I don't always agree with what he's saying. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, somebody needs to comment. It, it was actually Only God Forgives. Only God Forgives. He said was a perfect film. Okay, that was it. And uh, I actually agree with that, but I'm a weirdo. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I love that movie too, but I think we're the only people. I know maybe one other person who loves Only God Forgives. I think it's probably his best movie, and I actually. Okay. I, if I was interviewing Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be like. Don't you think, or what do you think about my shirt being like the best shirt I've ever worn? Hmm? (laughs) What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes, so uh, recommendations. Joel, you can go first. This is 1980. Hey, thanks a lot, you jerk. No. Uh, So 1980 has been covered to death, and I haven't watched anything new from it, but I have watched something new from 1981. So here's my cheat. Uh, I've had this Blu-ray, a 3D Blu-ray, I don't have a 3D TV, so I, I don't get to watch it in 3D yet, of a movie called Coming At Ya from 1981, and directed by Fernando Bali, and starring Tony Anthony. Now, Tony Anthony apparently was uh, kind of a prolific producer during this time period, and he shortly retired from acting after... Uh, the next movie he made in 1982, which was, like, Coming At You, a 3D movie. And Coming At You is one of the movies that's credited with bringing back the whole 3D craze back in the 1980s. And so I watched it, and I I get a huge kick out of the, like, uh, obvious 3D screen things, like in Friday the 13th Part 3, where somebody's like playing with a yo-yo and it's just like, whoa, 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 you know. This movie, compared to Friday the 13th, I think it has at least three to four times like the, oh, it's 3D, it's coming at your face kind of thing. And it's it's super entertaining that way, but the movie itself is actually pretty good as a copy of like spaghetti western styles because our, our hero um, to... to to get into a little bit of the plot, our hero was just getting married. They're literally at the wedding ceremony, and then bandits come in. They shoot him, leave him to die, and take the woman. And so his whole mission from that point, coming back, is trying to get back his uh, fiance. I don't even know if they're officially married at that point. <sighs> Anyways. <laughs> but... It is just a well played out spaghetti western. Like the the bad guys are bad guys. The 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 uh, hero goes anti hero on occasion, and there's plenty of people getting shot to death. So I was pleasantly surprised watching it, and I would recommend it. That'll be it for me. Okay. 
Uh, I have a couple of quick ones. Uh, I recommend this before, but uh, if you know me, you know I'm a Shelley Duvall diehard, and her best, second best movie came out in 1980. Not The Shining. Not talking about that. I'm talking about Popeye. Popeye is a classic. I love that movie so goddamn much. It's 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 so silly and fun, and it had one of my favorite movie jokes. Uh, when when Popeye discovers Sweet Pea, or Sweet Pea, uh, and it that 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 moment always makes me laugh every single time. Um. Yeah, it's 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 perfect. And uh, my other one, my other ones are books. I haven't brought up an African uh, novel recently, but uh, one is, and I haven't read these because some of these are out of print, but I want to mention the the people. One is One is Enough by Flora Nawapa. She was, to me, a real-life superhero. She was the first um, woman to hold, fuck, what was it? She had, she was the head of a federal government, a federal division in in the Nigerian government after the civil war and she helped reunite family families that were separated because of the civil war in the 60s it was uh, she spearheaded this whole program and she did a lot of awesome shit and uh she also wrote a bunch of novels and one of them is one is enough that is available and uh, i haven't read it yet but i just want to mention florina wapa because she uh she is fucking awesome and the other one is Motherless Baby by Cipriana Quincy. This one, I think, is out of print. I've been looking for it for a little bit, but uh, it's Cipriana Quincy, so any chance I have to bring him up, I, I uh, will. He made... He wrote uh, very he wrote novels that were, are pretty short and quick reads, but uh, he f- kind of focused on contemporary um, Nigeria and stuff going on uh, politically and culturally, but, uh, if you can find any of his novels, I highly recommend it. He gets a lot of flack now for being bad at writing women, which I can say he was bad at writing women overall, but that doesn't take away from, uh, him being, like, one of the first internationally published African writers, uh, ever. I think he was the second one. For second or third. So, yeah. Mark or Zach, you guys can go. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to uh, have... I just got one. Um, I could easily... Because we're talking about cruising and Joe Spinelli's in it, I could easily go with Maniac or I can go with Friday 13th because I'm a horror nerd. But I'm assuming that everybody who's listened to this have seen at least one of those. I'm going to go with an obscure movie that um, a lot of people have forgotten, especially with the new Stephen King adaptation coming um, that just came out. Um, it's a movie called The Boogeyman. Um, it was made by this director named Yuli, U-L-L-I, Lomini or something like that. And it's about this um killer this supernatural killer that returns to torture a brother and sister through a fragmented piece of a mirror that um was shattered that released the spirit so anytime this a shard this mirror pops up um he starts killing people 
and the reason why I'm bringing it up is because a lot of people when they you know think of the boogeyman they go back to that 19 well not the two the late ninth no the early 2000s movies um the directed DVD movies the first one was um theatrical but the other two were directed DVD and they tend to forget the 1980 movie the boogeyman and it did have a sequel called the boogeyman 2 and then they did a very hard to find third movie called return of the boogeyman in 91 but just go check out the boogeyman it was just released uh, on i want to say blu-ray on vinegar syndrome they just you know released that so just check it out if you haven't seen it yet um joel this is relevant to uh you and me uh, Uli Lamel director that the Fassbender actor. Oh wow! Yes, okay. <laughs> that's fucking crazy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That's all I got. Okay, no, that's good. Thank you. Um, I will say I'm gonna go a little bit into 1979 as well, but I'm gonna make two recommendations. Um, and something I always think about when I'm watching Cruising too is how 1979's The Warriors, um, I think that that's just, it has a really similar kind of feel to it. Um, just like it has a real energy to it. It has that same kind of like punk um, kind of subculture thing that's, you know, obviously very exaggerated, but, um, you know, Walter Hill's first like real movie you know, we went on to do mostly action stuff, but I think like, you know, at that time, the Warriors is just really, um, I don't know. It's one of my favorite movies. It's just something that I really like care about, um, watching. I think it has some of the best scenes of that kind of genre. Um, and then my second one is again, related because there's a poster for the Warriors in the movie, but, uh, 1980s, um, American Gigolo from, uh, Paul Schrader. Hmm, never think, heard of it. Oh, it's well, it's a. <laughs> I, I like it a lot. I know, like a lot of people really hate it, um, but I think it has it shares some similar themes. To um, yeah, you get you get naked, uh, Richard Gere. I'm sorry, I was being sarcastic. Yep. Yeah, we had an episode oh. on it. We recorded one already on it. Oh no. Okay, sorry. Well, either way, no, I uh, just when I'm when I'm putting together like a double or triple feature. I think of these three movies together and they just share a lot of similar themes of even maybe some repressed homosexuality within Richard Gere's character. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of that, like, you know, Paul Schrader is is a very similar filmmaker to William Friedkin, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Definitely. Um, Yeah. And, you know, has admitted his kind of interest in the fringe of society. Um, I think all three of these movies are hyper-masculine movies. Um, the same time so you know i think what there's one woman in in uh cruising um maybe a yeah. couple yes. like gender fluid Poli- people but like otherwise it's, maybe some police officers but no speaking lines yeah yeah um and i think that all three of these movies focus on men in a similar capacity of you know what does masculinity mean or what is um sexuality or using sexuality hmm. in some way um, yeah. So those, yeah, to me, those are just like three movies that fit in the book really nicely together. And yeah. And, uh, kind of like the, the glue in between them all. I can see that. And American Gigolo has Bill Duke 
but he oh. has hair in it, and it's crazy when you realize it's the it's weirdest him. hair too. Oh, it's yeah. like, Bill Duke, I understand why you <laughs> shave your head, but he's <laughs> I love him in it too. Like there, I mean, there's not a Bill Duke I don't love. Yeah, and you get naked Richard Gear. So if that's you get the naked one, Richard Gear, you just get some. Yeah, you keep bringing up that. I know. I, I like the young Richard Gear. I like younger yeah. Gear movies. He's really cool and fascinating. Then he made like Hollywood stuff, and he's not as interesting. Have you ever yeah. heard the Versace thing for that movie? I think it's what he's wearing Versace in it. Mm-hmm. But apparently, yes. apparently, like before they made the movie, you know, they were doing something like ninety thousand dollars in sales every year, and then after that movie came out, they jumped to like two hundred million in sales. Wow! Surprised. Allegedly, like Richard Gere can walk into any of their store and just take whatever he wants off the rack because he feels like he. Wow! That's again. That's a uh, that's a rumor. I don't know how much of it's true. I like to believe it's true because it's a really awesome story, and we're talking about cinema here. And what's more cinematic Mm -hmm. than some, you know, story I heard from a guy who heard. Yeah, he's he's a multi-millionaire. He can walk into any store and walk out with a lot of stuff. (laughs) God damn it! You guys, uh, perfect. <laughs> that's because that that's the alarm that tells us when we're approaching two. That's hours, the wrap it up alarm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys got stuff to promote, like websites, podcast appearances, whatever stuff like that. Um, you mean me? Um, or just in general? No, oh, yeah. You, you go oh, first. Okay. Uh, well, my podcast is Midnight Social Distortion. Um, it is on hiatus right now. I am thinking about doing a prize special before the month's out, but it just depends on timing. And I also am a part of a podcast slash YouTube channel called Screen Kings. That's Screen Kings with a Z at the end of the Kings. And we're getting ready to shoot a season premiere tonight and also i am you can find me on instagram at mark oestis all one word which is a private page um you can also find me on instagram at midnight social distortion all one word that's my public page you can follow me on twitter at the anti-critic and that's pretty much it. I'm 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 trying to spread out more on um social media. You are on um uh peaches christ podcast talking about gunter and hess yes that was um that was february wasn't it um, um just this year has been a blur um yes. that was when i contacted yeah. you was after i heard that so i can't remember when right um i can be found on a, a several other podcasts but also but the but if you really want to see my writing style you can check out an article just google the um quick history of black queer horror characters and that's my article that i wrote for the counter narrative project about you know black queer characters it needs to be up in horror it needs to be updated uh, because there's been a plethora of them been that have been come have come out in recent years since the article came out, but as of right now, that's what I have right there. Um, okay. Yeah. So. All right. And uh, well, I, I would recommend your episode. I forgot what uh, Peaches Christ podcast is called, but like Midnight Mass. There we go. Yeah. And Godred Hess is my favorite movie of all time ever. To me, it's perfect. So. Uh, I, and that was a great episode on it. Wait, are you saying it's better than Popeye? Yes. Oh, okay. Just checking. 
<laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it's okay if you say it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's pretty close. But, um, okay, for me, I write for Grumpire. Uh, I have a piece on Godfrey Cambridge. He was a stand-up actor, uh, theater performer, uh, civil rights activist. Uh, he did a whole lot of stuff. And I wrote about him his in his brief career. He died very young. He was playing Idi Amin in a TV movie and had a heart attack on set. And uh, he's only like 40-something. And um, 43, I think. Anyway, he had two movies come out on the same day. The Watermelon Man and Cotton Comes to Harlem. So I wrote about those two movies and kind of his and his place within those movies and uh, like what made Godfrey Cambridge such a unique and fascinating performer. And uh, I have another piece coming out pretty soon on Stormy Weather, the the musical, and how it's secretly a punk movie on for Grumpire. And uh, I have another thing cooking up on on uh, Nigerian recent Nigerian movies. I have to kind of figure out my uh, point of view on on exactly, but uh, yeah. So I have uh, some stuff coming up on Grumpire, and I've just recorded episode on movies from hell that should be coming out in a week or two on the night comes for us and uh, action movie that's similar but very stupid and bad in comparison to it and that's it for me um currently right now um i the company i work for retrotainment games we just put out a um garbage pail kids game that came out um a couple months ago uh awesome the last game that we worked on before that that's actually our a big game uh, that we wrote and designed ourselves called Cool Quiet. It was just announced yesterday, I believe, for the Switch and um, Xbox and Steam. So that'll be coming out sometime this summer. Um, I guess on podcasts every once in a while. Um, I am fortunate to have some really wonderful friends out there that do some really fantastic work, um, Spencer included, that um, ask me? me to show up every once in a while. Um, yeah, this has been really, really fun. So no real shout outs other than that. Um, so you will return it. to everyone and oh, a cab baby. Oh yeah, definitely a cab. And you will return in, in a few weeks to talk about women on the verge of fuck. What is it called? A nervous breakdown. Yeah. Nervous there breakdown. we go. You want to talk about the most handsome man alive. Uh, Antonio Banderas in that movie is like top five to me. Hmm. Okay, I see it. <laughs> I don't know. I think him playing a psychotic doctor in Sky Living is pretty sexy. I'm kidding. No, that that character is. Uh, you know, you're gonna be on the episode, Zach. So we'll get into it. Then. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about Bed Ringers at some point as well, and Skin I Live In. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, J Dog, you got stuff besides the show, or no? I mean the the sexual peak for, or at least the point the point where I noticed how uh, sexy that Antonio Banderas was was in uh, Interview with a Vampire. Hmm. Yes, it's just like um, I'm not gay, but <laughs> well, I, I would feel really bad if I left without saying you know bringing up you know the first bisexual dream movie ever, which was Desperado. Um, ah, yeah. Antonio Banderas and uh, Selma Hayek. 
is just um, the chef is the chef kisses. Yep. Hmm. All right. And uh, you can find the show on uh, under Sister Sewer Rat. That's a character from Dark Habits, my favorite Omodavar film. Not the best one. It's just one I I dearly love so much, even though it's uh, it, it's not the best. It's still pretty good. But uh, Omodavar can't make a bad movie, in my opinion. So far, he's still making movies. <laughs> uh, Sometimes his films just like, they you can't grade them the same way you grade other movies. They're yeah. Of, like... Uh, critique proof in the mm-hmm. way that he's just going to make art regardless yeah I always I was this I always do a quick comparison he's not Spike Lee Spike Lee has made some terrible movies and some brilliant movies and a lot right in the middle but, some of uh, them were the same thing like some of them were <laughs> yep yeah yeah very true let's listen to our Spike I mean, Lee season we go through it's a quiet journey of uh, great shit and like, what the fuck are we watching? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like that, that was a fun ride. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like, does Spike Lee know what a lesbian is? I'm pretty sure he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is a really good um, kind of segue to you know, again, Happy Pride, everyone. Yeah, Happy Pride. <laughs> Don't yeah, watch She Hate Me. That's not a, that's not a Pride-approved movie, in my opinion. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> Anyway, yes. Although it does have your your favorite uh, CGI of any movie. Oh, CGI jizz! It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Really? I don't know if it's yeah, a. Po- wanna, really? Is, it, the is there CGI jizz, or really is in, is that hilarious? Really, as in CGI. I, I, that's one of the Spikes films. I just didn't have the urge to watch. You don't need so to. It's not it. good. You really don't need to. But uh, all you have to do is follow Spencer's Twitter, and you're going to see the image. Yeah, you'll see the CGI jizz. And the movie has CGI eggs, too, with the actress' faces on it as well. Oh. Monica Bellucci uh, gets CGI eggs. It's it's a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. I was most definitely looking at that. (laughs) Wow, okay, CGI, come, okay, never. Yeah, okay. anyway, so, yeah, Mark, you, you have a, you're always welcome back, you have open pass, if there's, okay, yeah, if there's anything, yes. like, uh, uh, queer, or, like, transgressive, or whatever, that you want to talk about, you know, let me know. And if y'all need me on for anything, just let me know, too, I'm, I'm, I'm here, so, just let me know. All right. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back. I'll be, I'm excited to come back. I'm, I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh. Really. If, if I may say, if you and Zach started a podcast, I would subscribe because <laughs> that con- <laughs> just like the conversation you guys were having, I was so like into it. I don't even. I was like, I don't care. This is my podcast. It's, it's just have these two. Thank you so much for being <laughs> indulgent. Um, I, I appreciate that, Mark. It's been really awesome talking to you and getting you know meeting you with this in this way too as well. Yes. Right. Yeah. Same. 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 Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. So, I just yeah, followed so, you on Instagram, oh. so we'll 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 link up. All right. Let me go ahead and hit the follow back. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, thank you guys for your time. And Joel, shut it down. Okay, guys, do not shut it down. don't exit. Please.
Our theme music is by James Fell. Our logo is by Andrew Bargeron. You can find him as Jemetsko on Threadless, TeePublic, Redbubble, Shirt Woot Catalog, and T-Theory. That is spelled G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. You can find our show in previous seasons on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and other places where you can find podcasts.